Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I was waiting for a robust response there. Good morning. Rather pathetic, actually. <laughs> but uh, that's okay. Um, we're pushing on with our study of the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, we're going to finish uh, right at the end of chapter 7, and today we're going to get into chapter 8. Um, and um, the end is actually in sight. I've been thinking about our next, and we're not going to finish this next week, but certainly within the next uh, three or four weeks, I believe we probably will be very close to it. So I have to be thinking about the next study. So uh, any input from you is always appreciated. So uh, other, otherwise, I will just sovereignly and autocratically and dictatorially choose. But uh, if you do, if there is something you really would like to study, um, and I... Generally speaking, I'd like to, um, and, and you've been, some of you have been around uh, with me for a couple of years and know that, I like to focus on the scriptures instead of there are lots yeah. and lots of books out there which we can all get and all benefit from. But I think uh, God's Spirit most uh, powerfully and most significantly uses His Word, which He inspired. So that's what I'd like to stick to. Another way of saying that you're going to make a really compelling case for us not focusing on the Bible. Um, on the board, I, I think I've written this up here about six times or so, but it really is the perhaps the best way, and certainly where we're going to be in a minute, in verse 25, chapter 7, the best way to uh, really keep driving home what Solomon is saying in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, God is, you know, all of the attributes, and uh, four weeks ago or so we just listed some of them, uh, just to review what that means, but the character uh, traits, the attributes of God, and uh, among those would be His sovereignty, His providence, His goodness, His eternal, His eternality, uh, that He's omnipotent, omnipresent, and all of those things just go on and on and on. The thing about God is because He's infinite and we are finite, because he is eternal and we are temporal, because he is sovereign and we are not, because he has the big picture of everything that's going on, we don't, we're very limited to our narrow world in which we live, it, re it requires us to respond in one of two ways. We either respond uh, in faith and trust in him and, and hopefully in obedience to him, Solomon characterizes, indeed all of the Bible characterizes this as wisdom. Whereas the typical human being, and this is part of our problem, and part of the major reason why Christ had to come, is the response instead is one of sin, of rebellion against God, and of disobedience. This is a stick man, if you didn't recognize it. To characterize a human being, you have to choose which one of those is going to characterize your life. Because this is the path of a fool. And consistently in every book of the Bible, whether that term is actually used or not, most of the time these terms are used. This is the path of wisdom. This is the path of the fool. And for, um, for you and me, the path of wisdom begins with the decision of what you're going to do with Jesus Christ. That's the most important decision. And for Solomon, what he's doing, Solomon, and I think this is obvious, but I probably should say it, Solomon does not talk about in the book 
He doesn't talk about that initial decision of faith. He is writing to the people of Israel who, uh, for the most part, were in a covenant relationship with God. He is telling them again and again and again, because of who God is, put your faith in him, trust him, and obey him. Because if you choose not to live a life like that, instead you choose to live a life like this, both of these choices have significant consequences, both temporal and eternal. So, again, I mean, I think every week for the last four or five I've done something like this on the board, but I think it's helpful to just keep doing it. You know, a good teacher gives a preview, and then you do a view, and then you're constantly reviewing. So we're in that constant reviewing section of, of this. But that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. Beginning in verse 25, chapter 7. Does that make sense? Do I need to review that again? Everybody's got it? All right, I'm going to turn the board around. I'm going to give you half a sheet of paper. I'm going to draw a line in the middle. I'm going to ask you to reproduce it. That's a whole different story. Isn't Jim, it? can I ask you a question? When you yeah, this? please. You know, we've, we've said that he's one of the wisest men that ever lived. Solomon. Mm-hmm. Solomon. And yet, we say, I think last time we said, in practicality, he wasn't wise. So how do we balance that? I know you said in retrospect, looking back at the end of his life, he basically comes to a, a correct vision of who God is. He comes to his senses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when he writes this book, for example. You know. um, I'm not... I'm not sure where you're going with your comments and question or, or, or what you I, want I don't to know say. why there's an obvious contradiction, you know, supposedly the wisest man, and yet he mm-hmm. wasn't wise. And so why he was equipped with the ability to be wise, but he didn't utilize the wisdom that God had given to him. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yes, that's probably, uh, that's probably a, 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 the best way to put it. Um, wisdom is something that's available to us. Uh, and you uh, acquire and, and uh, <clears throat> develop wisdom as you live. But every single day of our lives, we, cho- we have to choose which, which path are we going to live today. We may have made a decision of faith, you know, putting it in 2014, a decision of faith in Christ and so on. But every morning we have to wake up and decide which one of these paths am I going to choose to follow. And Solomon, uh, and it, it, when you read the historical material on Solomon, which is in Second Kings and, and, and Chronicles, what you see is a man who slowly but perceptibly took steps away from wisdom. You can have wisdom, but it's how you live it, how you practically apply the wisdom that you have. Um, Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. He made, in those early years of his reign, he made incredibly wise decisions. Uh, He um, made very wise political decisions because Israel had become the most powerful nation in the eastern Mediterranean at that time. He made very, very shrewd financial and economic decisions for his nation. It controlled the two major trade routes of of that time of, of history. He taxed them. He... He took advantage of that for the sake. It's very wise. It's very shrewd. But as time went on in his personal life, some of the things that he did evidenced not wisdom, but foolishness. Why? Because he chose to sin. He chose to rebel. And he chose to be disobedient. 
And so every single day, you and I can, and, and if you put it the way it's, it's laid out in the book of Ecclesiastes, every single day, regardless of whether we've made a decision of faith in Christ or not, every single day we have to choose, are we going to be choosing today the path of a fool? Are we going to be choosing today the path of what? Of wisdom. We still have to choose that. You can have wisdom, but the 64000 well, we don't speak of $64,000. That doesn't mean much. We had the $5 million question is, uh, you know, which, which one of these paths am I going to choose today? And uh, it's, you know, that's kind, of, that's kind of the bottom line of this. And it's, uh, Fred and I had this all planned out because that's verse 25. Look at what he says. I directed my mind, notice these infinitives, notice these verbs here, to know, to investigate, to seek wisdom, and an explanation, and to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. Now, again, you know, the way he writes this in colorful language, but he's done this before in the book. I am investigating the human condition. And I want to know, investigate, seek, and explain wisdom. But I'm also going to know and seek and try to understand foolishness and madness. Now, if you, let's suppose you and I were to set out and do something like that. Uh, what would you look at? What would you observe? Well, you can read a lot of books. You can go back and read some of the ancient philosophies of Greece in the 5th century B.C. or of ancient Rome, say the 1st century B.C. into the 1st century A.D. of their great, uh, great uh, uh, centuries of philosophy in Rome or whatever. You can go and read Confucius or whatever. That's not what Solomon did. To some extent he did, but what he did is he observed people. He observed life. He observed people, observed people living, including his own. He reflected on it. He thought about it. And after, in a very real sense, um, in, in a very real sense, this, the verbs of verse 25, it's not, I did this in a week. This is a lifelong thing. This has been a lifelong investigation. And this is what I've concluded. And I discovered, verse 26, more bitter than death is the woman. Now, this is lady folly. This isn't lady wisdom. This is lady folly. Woman there is not, and it's not a literal woman that he saw down in the red district of Jerusalem. Or not red, what do you call it? red light district of Jerusalem. <laughs> no, you don't even know what I'm talking about, so forget it. But anyway, he, he's per, he's personifying woman. Woman can either represent wisdom or folly. So this is lady folly. This is lady foolishness, whose heart snares and nets, and whose hands are chained. The path of foolishness. It's a path to what? Slavery, defeat, ensnarement. It grabs a hold of you and pulls you down. Um, if you and I would 
spend the next year and just look at a whole bunch of people. I mean, if say we were social scientists, sociologists, and we would just we we would we would examine and study the lives and lifestyles of a hundred people. Do you think we'd reach the same conclusion Solomon just reached? That this is the path of enslavement. It ensnares you. It it enslaves you. It promises what it cannot deliver. Do you think we would see evidence of that? It's all over the place. And this is the kind of thing Solomon's done. This, I think this is the fourth time in the book he says, this is what I've done. And then he, he ends in verse 26 with a second conclusion. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. A wise person knows, stay away from this. The first Bible study that I did here, many, 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 many years ago, was studying the first nine chapters of Proverbs, which largely, for the most part, those chapters, Solomon is talking to his children, and he's writing Proverbs to his children. And in some cases, he mentions his daughters, but for the most part, it's his sons. In some cases, it's singular sons. some places, it's plural, his sons. And one of the things he consistently says to them is, be wise and be discerning, boys. My counsel to you is, there are certain parts of town I wouldn't go to. Stay away from certain parts of town. Because as you go into those parts of town, there are ladies in the street who will just pull you in. They're attractive. They're going to offer you things that are going to be a delight to your soul. But sons, stay away from them. Now, it does and can mean, of course, prostitute. You know, down in the certain sections of the city. But he's, it's really, it's figurative. It's, it's all of the things of life. Be really, really, really discerning. Because every time you make a choice to do something, there's a consequence to that choice. Son, it may, and, and that's why, and, and uh, let me just finish now, uh, uh, get your question, Woody. He's, he's, making, he's making foolishness, the path of the foolish person, like a woman. Now, now that would, this is a group of men, so I can say it that way. If it were women in this group, I don't quite know what I would say. But, I mean, he's, he's using woman here as like a figurative, a figure of foolishness. And I often would say to my kids, especially my son, Jonathan, be discerning. Learn the consequences of every one of your choices, because that's what life is. Every time you make a choice, no matter how innocuous it might, uh, innocuous means simple, no matter how simple it might seem, it's going to have a consequence. And there are going to be so many individuals and so many things in life that can ensnare you and enslave you. Not just a woman but woman folly, lady folly. And so that's the kind of advice and counsel that he gives because this is what he observed, Solomon. This is what he observed throughout his whole life. And so he said, because he personally, he personally was very wise, very discerning, 
But you can be wise and you can be discerning, but you still must make a choice. You still have to choose. You may know intuitively as well as based on experience as well as what is rooted in this word what the path of wisdom is. And you may have chosen it 96 times. You still have to choose it the 97th time. And the wonderful thing about our God is he gives us the enablement, the power, and the strength. He gives us one another. He gives us sessions like this to just keep reminding one another of how important the power of choices in life. Every single day, and the Lord willing, as we get older, we've learned that. And we learn almost instinctively what the path of wisdom is. It becomes so much our norm that we're choosing the path of wisdom in the power of God. I just want to ask you to repeat, which Proverbs did Solomon... The first, nine, the first nine chapters of Proverbs, Woody, is largely he's talking to his children there. Thank you. And I've used that sometimes with, with fathers and, and some parenting things. Maybe more so, and I think I'm right in a statement like this, more so today than, than certainly in recent history. Young parents, you know, you know mid-20s, having their first couple kids, they're having children a little bit later in life, uh, typically in the United States. And the church, therefore, is not uh, immune to that. But part of the challenge is, I think, many young couples do not know how to be good parents. They really don't know what parenting looks like in this kind of culture. Because, you honestly, you, you look around with some futility to find some good models of that. So... Uh, I'm suggesting to our church that I'm involved with that that's something we should really think about in this new church year, you know, because church years kind of begin <coughs> September, sort of, you know, that we should really think about, because our, our church is all young families. I mean, it's, until Peggy and I joined, the mean age was 28. We skewed it pretty high, but, you know, I mean, it's just, and that's great, but the problem with that, maybe I should say the challenge with that, is just what Solomon is saying. What does the path of wisdom look like? Well, the Bible talks about it. But what does the path of living that wisdom look like? What does the path of living wisdom parenting look like in the 21st century? Next verse. So he's lady folly and snares. But the wise person, the person who's pleasing to God, escapes from her. Verse 27, Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, remember the preacher Solomon, adding one thing to another to find an explanation. While I am still seeking but have not found, I found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all of these. Now, that again, that sounds like it's a very sexist comment. It's not, and I wrote about this in your notes. This is, this is Hebrew parallelism. This is Hebrew poetry. And he, he does it this way. I've looked for a wise person. And I found one among a thousand men. And I have not found wisdom. Woman is a personification of wisdom. Remember? Woman is a personification of folly in verse 26. 
I've not really found a wise man among them. I really haven't. It's Solomon is saying what is the obvious. And think of himself. Intellectually, I had wisdom, but I didn't live it. The Christian man today has a lot of access to wisdom in these 66 books that constitute the Bible are a tremendous resource for wisdom, but it's living it. And Solomon says, in part of my investigation, part part of my, my seeking, is I really didn't find very many people out there that had found Lady Wisdom. Verse 29, But I have discovered this. God made men upright. And men men there is gender neutral. It's humanity. Upright. It's a very difficult phrase to translate in Hebrew. But they sought out many devices. Another way to translate that. But they are following their own schemes. Now that is the history of Scripture. God created the human race upright. And the word upright is a, an Old Testament Hebrew word meaning God. God created humanity in a situation where they had everything they needed. But they still chose what? To live life their own way. Their own devices. Their own schemes. That's what Genesis 3 is all about. And that's what the entire scriptures are all about. What Solomon found absent in his investigation isn't God's fault. God made humans upright. The problem is this. This is the problem. Do you understand what he's saying? So he, again, this is the fourth time I think he's done this. I'm investigating the two opposites of the human condition, the wise person and the fool. And fool is like a lady, lady folly. She is very attractive. She promises so much. But fundamentally, she promises what she cannot deliver. The wise person escapes her, runs away from her. But in my investigation, you know, quite frankly, I haven't found anybody that has really embraced Lady Wisdom. But that's not God's fault. Because human beings are always, always, always seeking their own schemes, their own devices. Let's put it the way we've been putting it up on the board. Human beings intuitively have the tendency to choose the path of the fool. That's why they need God so much. That last sentence that you're going to go to, that's pretty rough. The next one. And you notice. Oh. It's kind of discouraging. <laughs> Humans therefore lack true righteousness, true wisdom, and cannot please God. Is that what you mean? No, in your notes. Humans therefore lack, yeah. Yeah, humans lack for righteousness, cannot, yes. Yeah. No, humans cannot please God. Yes. 
I should have added a sentence, but God has provided a way for us to be righteous, to be wise, and be able to please him. And it's walking, walking with Christ. But you're right. I mean, that's what's, in a sense, I just paraphrased that whole section from verse 25 to 29. That's paraphrasing it. When you observe human nature, it's really difficult to be optimistic about human nature when you observe it, as he did. Okay. Can I ask a question? Um, No. No. (laughs) Of course you can. Um, 26, it says, one who is pleasing to God will escape. Is that because uh, we have the ability, as we sit around this table here, we have the knowledge, I mean, we've been exposed to it. Uh, I think everyone here has a personal relationship with Christ. Um, one who is pleasing to God will. It's almost, is that a promise or is that the result, uh, do, you, do you think, for encouraging us today? Is, is, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. We still have to exercise, but what's the... I mean, My we, version is slightly different. Mike, maybe yeah. some clarification. He who pleases God escapes her. I think that's what he really means. So that's the result. You're pleasing, therefore you've got a free pass. And of the two choices here of path, this is this is the choice. The choice of wisdom, following God, obedient, faith, trust in God, is a person who will escape her snare. But, I mean that whole the whole meaning of pleasing to God, you dump all all of this into that. I mean, it isn't just, okay, I please God now. I mean, you understand what I mean? It, it's, the cho- it's, choosing, it's choosing that path of wisdom, which is, is faith, in, faith in God, trusting him daily, and, and walking in obedience with him. You will escape the snare of Lady Folly. You will escape it. But if you try to face her on your own schemes and your own devices and your own ways of doing it, She'll snare. That's why those little figures of speech snare. You know what a net is. I mean, it's, she's going to catch you. <laughs> Lady Folly will catch you, and you're not going to escape. Because typically an animal or fish, you can use them in both. In the ancient world they did. Once, once an animal or fish is in a net, they don't escape. They're caught, and their fate is sealed. And that's what Solomon says to his kids in those first nine chapters of, Sol- of uh, Proverbs. Just, just look, the path of the wise person is don't go down to that part of town, or or stay stay away from stay away from the lure of gold and silver alone. Stay away from that, because you will find that does not satisfy you. I mean, it's just those little practical nuggets. And he's just saying what he says here. This is the fourth time he set it up like this. I've investigated, and here's my conclusion. I don't know how you, I don't know how you guys process this. Maybe some of you don't even aware of it. But uh, what was it, two days ago, I guess. Two days ago, the news came that Robin Williams had committed suicide. And I, you know, I mean, that shocked me because I, you know, I really liked him. I mean, he is, he was, a, 
he was really fun to listen to. You ever seen him interviewed or a dialogue or something like that? I saw him on that. Um, oh, there's an acting school in New York City. A guy has actors come in and huh? Juilliard. School. Acting school. Yeah, an acting. Is that what it that's is? Where you came from. That's where okay, well. He was interviewed on that for an hour, and Peggy and I saw this is years ago. I mean, this isn't yesterday. That was the most amazing. This guy, he was absolutely brilliant and incredibly gifted in terms of his humor, his ability, you know, his one-liners. I mean, you're just laughing all the time. But I didn't know this. Much of his life, he struggled with depression, and especially acutely so the last couple of years. And uh, the one man who, that I read about him said he was incredibly fragile the last six, seven months, just teetering on absolute collapse emotionally. And I think, oh, my goodness. You know, and I just I, I reflected on that. I thought about that a lot over the last, uh, I don't know, 36, 48 hours or whatever it's been. Um, but it, it certainly illustrates something to us, that um, fame and wealth and success it's not a guarantee of stability in life. Almost the opposite. It, it's almost the opposite. It is. It's almost the opposite. Now, you know, we the, the cause of depression is uh, it's complicated. It's it really is, and why, why people sometimes we, we fall into a, a, a situation like that. But I've reflected on that with him over these last few hour, uh, few days, about thirty six hours or so. And you, you just think, what, a, what an incredibly tragic end to a man, 63 years old, who could have another 10, maybe even 20 years of, of life and being a, um, a source of a lot of humor for people. Solomon is commenting on the human condition here. He's commenting on what really, what really matters as we live our day by day by day life. All right, now we switch gears here. Any other comments or questions? This is, this is the kind of stuff, this is real-world stuff here. This isn't just theology and doctrine as much as I love to teach that and study that. This is real-world living. And if I can get you guys to think of nothing but this sloppy thing I've written on the board, the, most, the wisest choice in life is what do I do with the claims of Jesus Christ? It does not provide that, that of like, what is the solution? It does not talk about the Messiah yet, right? You mean in terms of what Solomon is writing about here? Yeah. The idea of the Messiah, when did it start arising in the Old Testament? Well, you do, you do have the um, important promise that God made to Solomon's father, David, what we call the Davidic Covenant. That David, I'm going to promise you an eternal... Summarized in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. I want to promise you an eternal dynasty, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne. Okay? Um, it does not take very long for the prophets to help Israel and Judah after the kingdom splits, but help, the, help them understand... That promise is not going to be fulfilled temporally. That's going to be fulfilled, I mean, within time only, it's going to be fulfilled by God's Messiah, God's anointed one. And so it's, it's in the prophets where you start to see that, in the 8th century B.C. prophets is where you first start to see that. 
So it's way after Solomon. It's not. Not way after Solomon, but after Solomon. That's correct. At the time of Solomon, they were not still waiting for the Messiah. When he was talking about the foolishness and the, you know, the humankind in general chooses their own path and there's no other way other than that, he was not promising the Messiah or not prophesizing about the Messiah. I'm not sure we can quite say it that way, Mark. I think what we can say is that the promise, the promise that the Jewish person, typical Jewish person was holding on to was twofold. One, that God, and this flows out of, of, of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, um, God has entered into a covenant relationship with me, an unconditional covenant relationship with me. And he's interested in every aspect of my life. And he wants me to walk with him. And I walk with him day by day. And that walk is characterized by all the elements of the Mosaic system. You know, sacrifices and feast days and all those kinds of things. That's what my walk with God looked like. And I understood. So this is the first part. I understood that God is taking care of my sin problem through the sacrifices. The Day of Atonement is the most important. It atone, atone means to cover my sin. The second promise that you held on to was that the, the hope of God's kingdom coming to earth is a hope that's channeled through David and his descendants. The Davidic monarchy, the monarchy of David and his descendants is where your hope is. That the king that's going to bring God's kingdom to earth is going to come through the Davidic monarchy. And that's one of the very important, there's a real good book that just came out called A Covenant People, which really charts this <laughs> quite carefully. But it, it was that hope that out of the Davidic monarchy is going to come the king who is going to bring about the kingdom of God on earth. We, and he will reign from Jerusalem. Okay, I mean, that's kind of the thinking they had. And they, or Mark, that's a Davidic idea. That's a Messianic idea. But the, 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 the reality is that as the Old Testament closes, the last book is Malachi, as the Old Testament closes, you don't know who that is. You know the promise. You know both promises. And you're living on the edge of both those promises. But you don't know who it is. What's the first verse of the New Testament? This is the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Son of David's first. Chronologically, that shouldn't be first. There's a thousand years that separates David and Abraham. But he's the son of David. He's the Messianic, Davidic king. But that's the conclusion of the Old Testament. It's started, you mean, by David himself. That idea of waiting for... That's right. Started by the promise to David. That's correct. Well, actually, no. No, if 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 you want (laughs) the initial promise is Genesis three seventeen, or Genesis three fifteen. Excuse me, as God God is is dealing with all the causes and results of the sin of Adam and Eve, and He says there will be a perpetual conflict. Saying this to Eve. Between your children, your descendants, the seed to come out of you, human race, and the serpent. 
but out of you is going to become one who will crush the head of the serpent. That's the first. We, in theology, I'm going to really impress you here. In theology, we call that the proto-euangelion, the first announcement of the gospel. That from woman is going to become is going to come one who will crush the head of Satan. Now, if that's the only verse in the Bible we had, there's still a promise there. That evil is going to be defeated by someone that's born from a woman. The rest of the Bible starts, you have this huge promise, narrowing it down. You leave the Old Testament, what do you know? It's going to be a child that's born into the Davidic line. That's what we know. The one who's going to crush Satan, it's a messianic idea, and messianic means anointed one, is, is going to be from the, 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 the descendant of David. That's what we know, but we don't know who it is. That's why as the New Testament opens, what do you know? Now we know who it is. We know who that is. And the evidence in the four Gospels is incontrovertible evidence as to who he is. And then his death, burial, and resurrection is, and again, when you tie all this together with all of the, all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Jesus, and this is the phrase that's used in the, in the New Testament, Jesus fulfills all these. Jesus completes all these. That's why we don't have to go up to Jerusalem anymore and offer sacrifices. In the words of Hebrews, Jesus did a once-for-all sacrifice for human sin. Now, I'm really expanding on your question, Mark, but you kept asking follow-up questions. But that, with Solomon, there is a, in its... Is this the right way to put it? In its infancy, there is a messianic promise. He knew that coming from David's line, he's in David's line, is one who will fulfill the covenant promise. That's the tragedy of Solomon as he gets older and bringing all these foreign wives into the kingdom with all their foreign gods. He is defeating, he is defeating the very promise God had made. And what do you conclude? He certainly isn't the one. He's not the anointed one. And then after he dies, what happens to his kingdom? It's split, which is the tragedy. All right. Wow. Which one in Genesis again? Can you <coughs> reference in Genesis? I'm sorry. I, 315. 315. Yeah, Genesis 315. All right, now chapter 8. Let's crack into that. Let's use our, let's use our model up here. And I'm going to phrase it a little differently. Providence of God and human government is what I called it in the notes. Let's put it another way. How does the wise person, how does the person who walks with God respond to governmental authority? What does wisdom look like in responding to authority in your life? Who is like the wise man who knows the interpretation of a matter? Two rhetorical questions that open the next section. A man's wisdom, and I know some of your translations have this a little differently perhaps, but a man's wisdom illumines him, causes 
his stern face to beam. Now that's that's the language of a proverb. What does he mean? He obviously didn't hear that. <laughs> a, a man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. What's he saying? Okay. It's satisfied. Have a sense of purpose. You can almost see it in the expressions of a wise man. Just the countenance of his face, you can see if he's wise or not. He has a charisma. Huh? He has a charisma. Yeah, yeah. They have to be really, 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 really careful in how far we go with this. But he's, he's, he's like making some comments that um, you can tell a wise person. You follow a wise person around. You observe them over a period of time. You don't see the difference. It's not hidden. And you see that purpose and meaning and uh, satisfaction and, um, I mean... I think what Solomon, and again, he's using proverbs, he's using figurative language. If you spend time with somebody who's wise, you see it. It's not hidden. Now he chooses to use an illustration in light of a wise person. And as I, I put it here a moment ago, how does a wise person respond to authority. Now, in the ancient world, and again, I mean, that's not really true for you and me in our 21st century world, but in the ancient world, there was primarily one source of authority in your life. It was the king. <coughs> you know, you, you, it, there wasn't much of a organized hierarchy in the ancient world. <laughs> There was one person. He taxed you. He conscripted your boys into his army. He pretty much ran your life. And a lot of times the land you worked was his because he owned everything. So how do you respond to that if you're a wise person? And so what I did in your, in your notes is I tried to kind of unpack this. And he's trying to help us, help us to see the virtue of being an obedient person. What are the virtues of obedience? Because I don't know what you men are like, but intuitively and often instinctively, I don't want to obey. Okay, I guess I'm the only one around this table. Okay, so uh, uniquely, I'm the only one who's like that. But I just, that's just who I am. I mean, I just, I push back on that, just instinctively, intuitively, because that's not the right way to do that. Now, I don't think, I don't think that's right, and I'm not going to do it. Now, that's my intuitive and instinctive response. Solomon says, I say, this is what I've observed. This is what I see consistently as the path of wisdom. Keep the command of the king. 
because of the oath before God. Obedience is a virtue. Because where does authority come from? From God. Now, I refer, I'm going to refer you to a couple passages of Scripture, and I, we won't turn to them, but Daniel chapter 4, verses 17 and 25. Daniel is talking to King Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar was one of the most arrogant, pride-filled men of the ancient world. And he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you must learn that the Most High rules in the affairs of men. Most High is a title for God. You must learn that. Romans chapter 13, verse 1 and following. Have a submissive spirit to government because God created government and puts in authority whom he wishes to put in authority. That's what Solomon is saying. Keep them a command of the king because of the oath before God. God is the one who establishes authority. And obedience is the path of a wise person because you understand that. Now, if you don't mind, I, I, want, I don't want to address this right now because there is a question that automatically comes up as you think more about this. Does that mean obeying the state, obeying the king, obeying the ruler is an absolute? No. Ethically speaking, the scriptures seem to say and teach us and give us many examples, no. You obey the king until it's a sin to obey the king. So that's something you know that we can see in the scriptures. But for now, let's stay away from the bunny trails for just a second. We'll come back to the bunny trail next week. But wisdom. Wisdom is a virtue of obedience. Obey the king. Because God put him there. Verse 3. A second virtue of obedience. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? Verse 3 and verse 4, in effect, are saying to us, don't flippantly, easily, or superficially join in a rebellion against the king. Because the human tendency is to rebel. The human tendency is to push back on authority. Solomon says, do not join in an evil matter. Because if you think you can change the king quickly, remember, he can do whatever he wants. And who really can say to the king, what are you doing? <laughs> okay, he's just... Let's let's put it, these are proverbs stated kind of proverbially. Let's put it in another way, all right? Let's think about it this way. <clears throat> Is God a God of order? Yes. yes. Is order in society a virtue? Sure. Yes. So if you are going to do something that is going to create disorder, 
make sure you really know what you're doing. Because the power of the king can easily crush you. So what he's saying is, look, God creates society, God creates authority in society, and order is a virtue in society. That's the way God wants things. Now, again, this gets into that bunny trail question, which we'll address next week. But the virtue of obedience is maintain the order of society. That's a virtue. Maintain the order of society. And don't quickly, in a hasty manner, or in a, in a superficial way, challenge the authority of the king. Because one, he's very powerful. And two, on what basis are you going to say to the king, why are you doing it that way? So it's a very practical, very common sense, not very difficult to figure out counsel. Obey the king and help preserve the order of society. <clears throat> what happens when there's disorder in society? Look at ISIS right now in Iraq. Look at what's happening in the northern section. It's absolutely horrible. That's a result of disorder. That's a result of chaos. People are really going to get hurt. There's going to be lots and lots of bloodshed. Now it's starvation. I mean, all of the things that that one group of people that are up on that mountain in northern Iraq are facing. Solomon is saying something very commonsensical and very, very practical. Again, we'll get to the bunny trail next week. Verse three, 5. He who keeps the royal command experiences no trouble. For a wise heart knows the proper time of procedure. Order, stability, that's a virtue of obedience. For there is a proper time and a proper procedure for every delight when a man's trouble is heavy upon him. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? No man has the authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over day of death, the day of death, and there's no discharge in the time of war, and evil will not deliver those who practice it. All this I've seen and applied to my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun when a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. Now, I'll deal with that last part of that verse in a minute. Solomon is sending the message, a wise person, in terms of lifestyle, in terms of practical common sense living, is an obedient person, a person who sees the virtue of order and stability and understands that time is in God's hands. I can't figure it out, Solomon says. I can't always put everything together, but that's what I've learned. That's what I've observed. That the path of wisdom is a path of obedience, a path that preserves and delights in order and stability because you understand that time and everything is in God's hands. He will deal with some of them. Now that's been consistent throughout the book that he's been saying to us again and again and again. All right, now, do you follow that? Now let's... Uh, let's reconcile that with like, when the government just gets totally out of control. 
tries to walk all over you. And I can think of endless examples of that mm -hmm. with, with what this says. That's the bunny trail. Okay, now let's start down that bunny trail. Um, first of all, two or three introductory comments. Um, when Solomon is writing this, any kind of democratic republican tradition, I don't mean party there, I mean the form of government, didn't exist. There was, there was no democracy in the ancient world. I mean, Athens had done a little bit of it in the, in the 5th century B.C. I mean, by and large, anything like you and I have didn't exist. It was very autocratic, very dictatorial, very authoritarian. Okay, now, But given that, you and I have the privilege of living in a democratic republic where we can affect change in a nonviolent manner. Now, that, that you have to interpret that in a lot of different ways, but I mean, you know, voting and supporting candidates, I mean, all those kinds of things. We can affect change in a nonviolent manner. In the ancient world, the only way to affect change was get rid of the king. There was no other way to do it. You know, you, you, you couldn't vote him out of office because he it was hereditary and it just is the way things worked in the ancient world for the most part. So I t to me, Dave, that's really an important caveat here. But I think there's a very sound and, and very consistently stated principle throughout the Bible. It's in the Old Testament, lots of different places, and it's taught in the New Testament. I put it a, a few moments ago, I put it this way. We obey the state until it's a sin to obey the state. If the state orders you to do something that is in clear, demonstrable violation of an ethical standard of God, you are not under obligation to obey that. But what's the core? Like when you have a Nazi or something like that. This is not, exactly. This is not, you know, just uh, any kind of idea or opinion or something like that. This is something that only applies for a Nazi kind of government. Is that right? Uh, exactly. Exactly. Christ is asking those Christians to yes. denounce. Yes. Convert to Islam or we're going to kill you. That's basically what they're saying to them. They, 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 if we are to believe their numbers, they've killed thousands and thousands of people who won't convert. Okay, in that kind of a situation, then what do you do? Well, you go up on a mountain. Yeah, you go up on a mountain, you run away. But it's, it's you, if the state orders you to do something that's in clear violation of an ethical standard of God, you're not under obligation. But there's always a corollary with that corollary is you may have to pay the price for disobedience. That's what martyrdom is all about. That's what, uh, in terms of uh, the history of the church, uh, that's, uh, that's what many people during the Nazi era uh, uh, would not uh, be participating in the issues of the Holocaust. They were trying to hide Jews, and some of them paid for their life with that. Corey Tenboom's story, as you probably know, is an example of that. So you have examples in the Bible, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. They were ordered to eat non-kosher food. They were ordered, they wouldn't do it. They were ordered to bow down before Nebuchadnezzar's uh, big uh, gold statue. They wouldn't do it. What happened to them? They end up in a fiery furnace. 
You in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, you have James and John ordered, do not preach the Messiah Jesus in Jerusalem. What do they do? They go out and preach Messiah Jesus in Jerusalem. What happens? They end up in jail. And I say to them, when, well, you, we told you not to do that. Look, we obey God, not you guys. You're ordering us to do something that's contradictory to what God says. We're not going to do it. But to pay the consequences. So the, the, the way Solomon is presenting this, as he does in everything, in a very practical way of living. But as with all Proverbs, you have to be very, very careful that you think, okay, is this an absolute? Do I absolutely obey the king regardless of what he tells me to do? No. If he orders you to do something that's in clear contradiction to God's ethical and moral law, you're under no obligation to obey it. But there will be a consequence to that, probably. All right. I believe it's time for us to stop. Hanging here out in the netherworld of, of wrestling through some of these ethical issues. But I hope you understand the way Solomon's presenting this. Uh, uh, and and uh, I think that's really helpful. Tomorrow, or I don't mean tomorrow. I mean next Wednesday, we're going to pick up with verse 10. He shifts gears quite a bit here. But we are nearing the end of our study. We really are. Because the last part is how do I look at old age, which doesn't apply to any of you in this room but me. And we'll talk about that. And we're going to have to start thinking about another study. So if you have ideas, let me know. I want to give you the illusion of participating in my decision. <laughs> what we're going to study. No, I really do. I, I, I want to hear from what you. Lord, thanks for this um, time of study, these uh, proverbial statements, the, the things that Solomon shares with us as a result, under the inspiration of God's spirit as he's writing this, of his investigation of things. At the end of his life, uh, I don't know if we would stamp across the life of Solomon an epitaph of great success. In many ways, it's one of the great tragedies of not only human history, but of biblical history. He made so many unwise choices. He had all the resources. He was the wisest man that has ever lived, the scriptures say. But he certainly did not apply it. He did not live it. There's one of the great tragedies. Every day in our lives, we have to choose a path. Are we going to be a path, choosing a path of wisdom today or a path of foolishness? Help us to be wise men. That begins with uh, what we do with the claims of Jesus Christ. But then every single day, it's choosing the path of wisdom, independence on you, in the power of your spirit who indwells us, the teachings and, and the, the, the way in which we're edified and built up by studying your word, as well as just being with one another. We're encouraged to be wise men. So I pray for these guys and all of the complexities of their lives. Help them to be men of wisdom men of obedience who walk with you and then help them to represent you well to their children, to their wives, to neighbors, to other family members, to those with whom they work. We seek to do that in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. See you in a week, Lord willing.